you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, I want to encourage you with this. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one and bring it with you. And uh, you might say, hey, I'd rather not, and I get it. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm suggesting something. Uh, I heard a quote this week that was convicting for me, um, and, and a guy talked about it. He said, uh, he was quoting an old famous preacher when he said, a good sign of a life that is not falling apart is a Bible that is. And uh, to have the Bible. So I guess we could judge it based on the condition of our cell phones if we needed to. But uh, I think he was talking about having a Bible. And uh, for me, the conviction came uh, hearing him talk. Say, hey, your kids, when you're looking at a screen, they don't know what you're looking at. But when you've got this opened up, they know exactly what you're doing. And so I just want to encourage you that way to, to get a Bible, open it up, take notes in it, and explore it. While you're turning to 1 Corinthians 3, I'm going to give you an update. Uh, the team that we sent to Haiti, they are home and they are... Uh, safe and had a good trip, and uh, they won't be joining us this morning. Just after traveling internationally, they're going to take some precautions. Uh, but I wanted to thank you. We encouraged everybody to set an alarm at 2 p.m. Uh, to join us, no matter where you were, and be united as a church and praying. Uh, enjoyed it so much that as other things come up, I think we're going to do a similar thing moving forward because I, I don't know about you, but you could feel the unity. You knew that when that alarm went off at 2 o'clock, that no matter where your church family was outside the walls of this building, that we were joining together and praying, and your prayers made a difference in, uh, in that team and the trip that they were able to enjoy. So thank you for doing that. So speaking of prayer, let's pray this morning that God would speak to us from his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the freedom we have to gather with no worries. We can be here today, and we can have your word, and for that we are grateful. And so we, as we turn to your word, uh, after having our hearts stirred and our affections stirred for Jesus through worship, and through a time of communion, we ask that you would speak to us clearly from your word. God, as we studied last week, we learned that the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us gives us the ability to understand more deeply uh, what your word says. And that's what we're requesting today, that through the power of your spirit, you would edify, encourage, and mature us. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. And when you walk into a nursery and you see babies, and you're confronted with babies, it's exactly what you're expecting to see, right? If you go back into our nursery right now, and you saw babies, you'd say, hey, this is normal. I'm in a nursery. Here's babies. And it's a joyful, delightful thing most of the time, right? Uh, it's enjoyable and fun and good, because when you see a baby, and you are expecting to see babies, it's a time of pure joy, really. In fact, as a young dad, um, with four kids, if, if you're new around here, my wife Sarah and I have four children, and here in a couple weeks, their ages will be 13, 11, 9, and 4. So uh, we are very busy. Uh, we've got a lot going on, and it's all great. And uh, I have been reflecting this week in particular on their lives, and the joy that I felt, uh, and the overwhelming fear that I felt uh, when we brought uh, our first uh, child home from the hospital, and then realizing that as we brought child two and three and four, that fear didn't dissipate. I still didn't know what I was doing, uh, still felt ill-equipped to add more to uh, the clan, and yet uh, God in his grace has just made it this incredible, joyful time. And uh, we pulled out, uh, I told you we sit around the table last week when we do our devotions uh, often, and one of the nights that we were doing that, I pulled out a computer and we began to pull out uh, pictures from when they were babies, because they can't remember that, obviously. And so with my daughter, we pulled out a picture of like right after she was born. And she's like, oh, that's gross. Like, uh, we're like, yep, yeah, that's part of it. And we were looking at fun, different pictures. And uh, a couple of them popped up. So th this is one of them. That one of my favorite things when they were babies is just 
when they're sleeping on me. Uh, it was like one of my favorite things. And then as they grew to be toddlers, I, I love wrestling. Um, and, and we get into wrestling. And so here, it, it, I'll do the video here of my, one, my middle son, Luke, uh, when he was a little boy, loved Turbo the Snail. And uh, so much that he thought he was Turbo. Turbo. Thought his name was Turbo. Luke, can I knock you out? No. Luke, can you knock me out? And boom. Ow. Just a lot of fun in our house. We didn't actually knock each other out, so I don't want any emails or phone calls. That was just goofing off and playing. Taking them to uh, swim lessons. Uh, we saw pictures that reminded us of the uh, not-so-pleasant experience of taking them to swim lessons or the first day of school and uh, the pictures that il- illustrated that. Helping them with their homework, which I could do until they you know, reached middle school and were taking math classes that were far more than what I did in Bible college, so uh, we recruited some help. Uh, here's the thing, though. What I don't do with my kids as they're 13, 11, and 9 is I don't have them rest on my chest like that anymore. They don't, they don't sleep on my chest for a couple of reasons. One, that's just weird, okay? Uh, they don't take naps on their dad. Two, I, I don't think I can handle it. They're not small anymore, and it's not comfortable, and that's just, again, weird. So we don't do that. But the, the real reason is because at some point in their life, they have to grow up. They have to leave certain things behind, and they have to move forward. And they have to mature and they need to grow. Maybe you've seen this trend online. It's funny, it's enjoyable, and we get a good laugh out of it. At least I do. Found some of these pictures online. Here's some pictures of people that are recreating pictures from when they were really, really young. I don't know if you've seen this. Here's one. And you know how this is going to go. Here's as an adult. That's a fun one. And then found uh, this one, these two brothers sitting in a pail, right, playing games. And then as adults uh, decide to do the same thing. And then you'll see why this next one's my favorite one, right? You know where this is going, right? And here it is as an adult, right? <laughs> right? We get a good laugh out of stuff like that, right? That stuff is goofy and it's fun. And some of you will probably spend your Sunday evening recreating pictures from your past now, right? We get fun. It's fun. But if that was real, like if people were really doing that and behaving that way, if she really ate spaghetti that way as an adult, that would be more of a tragedy. Because when a baby looks like a baby and acts like a baby, it's a pure joy. But when an adult, or for that matter, a teenager, acts like a baby, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. The conversations I'm having with my 13-year-old son, they're good, appropriate conversations for a 13-year-old boy. We're talking through things that they're being exposed to and they're learning, and we're having appropriate conversations about how to handle certain, certain things, and it's good. It's a wonderful season of life. I'm thoroughly enjoying it, I genuinely, even the hard stuff. If in 10 years... I'm having the exact same level of conversations with him. That's not going to be okay. If in 10 years, when he's 23 years old, we're still talking about things that 13-year-olds talk about in a serious manner, that's tragic because he hasn't grown up. He hasn't matured. He hasn't grown. And this is exactly the problem, the issue that the Apostle Paul is facing with the church in Corinth. This group of young Christians that he's clearly established in the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians how important it is for them to live a certain kind of life. He has established in 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2 that we're to protect unity and pursue unity, that the Holy Spirit that lives inside of anyone who is a Christian enables them to be able to deeply understand what God says in his word and that they should live their life from that place. 
so that the spiritual conversations that Paul might have with these believers after a year and a half with them and time after being with them, if he were to come back and visit, they're not having the same level of conversations that they were when they were new Christians. Paul's saying at some level, you need to grow up and you need to mature. Here's the thing, though. It's important for us as we jump into chapter 3 to understand that chapters 1 and 2 built a strong case for what it looks like to, to grow up. And many people can get confused in these two chapters into thinking that somehow if I stick with this long enough that I'll unleash the Jedi in me and I'll be this incredible Christian. And Paul's really clear that that's just not the case. That's not how this works. Paul says everybody who has the Holy Spirit living in them has two things. They have the opportunity to grow and the responsibility to grow. If you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and because of the work of the Holy Spirit, you can understand the depths of God's word, you have the opportunity to grow and mature. It's available to every single person. And at the same time, you have the responsibility to grow so that you can grow into maturity and be a part of God's kingdom. One preacher said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that if we will mature and grow, we achieve the mind of Christ. And the way he said it is this. The mind of Christ simply means, uh, the way I would say it is, you're allowing Jesus to be a part of everything in your life. And he had a good phrase. He said, it, it is allow, it's inviting Jesus into the everyday stuff of your life. And what we mean by that is this. There's no corner. There's no crevice. There's no closet. There's no dark hallway that's hidden from what you've invited Jesus to be a part of. Every conversation, every plan, the vision you have for your marriage, the way that you approach parenting, the life that you're living, the purpose you're pursuing, you've invited him to be a part of that. That's what he means at the end of chapter two when he says that we mature, the world won't understand it. They'll think it's foolish. You're telling me you're basing your entire life on what you read in this book. That is ridiculous. And Paul says they can't understand because the mystery is still a mystery to them, but to you who have the Spirit, that mystery's been revealed. And because it's been revealed, you live a different kind of life and you mature toward the mind of Christ. You mature as you allow Jesus to be a part of more and more of your life. Now in chapter three, Paul's going to kind of shift his attention specifically to these Christians in Corinth. Now don't let this be lost on you. This speaks clearly to every single one of us. But in 1 Corinthians chapter three, he's gonna speak specifically to what it is that's stunting their growth. You've been around, I'm sure, I'm sure you've been around this. People that, man, you, by now you should have known or by now you should have achieved or by now you should be doing. And, and we've said things like that because it's like, hey, something is preventing you from growing. You've stunted your growth. And Paul's saying, here are some things that are going on in your life that are preventing you from growing into the life I just described in the first two chapters. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, here's what Paul writes. Brothers and sisters, I could not, I wanted to, but I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. But instead, I have to address you as people who are worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, as you were not yet ready for it. But indeed, you still aren't ready for solid food. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you're not, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Now, in chapter 2, verse 14, the apostle Paul makes it clear that spiritual truths can only be understood by spiritual people. But now here in chapter 3, he, in a very blunt way, is looking at the church in Corinth and saying, you're not spiritual people. You're not spiritual people. And the word he uses, remember last week we talked about this word sukikos, and it means a worldly person in, in the Greek language. It's someone who's living by the natural desires of the world. 
And he describes that person as seeing the cross as foolishness. Now, that person doesn't have the spirit at all, so he doesn't use that word. Instead, he uses a word that could be better translated, in my opinion, carnal, when he says worldly. You are worldly. You are carnal, meaning you're saved. That's good. You have salvation. It's secure. It's good. Now, he does speak in other places where if you have salvation, you can walk away from that and give it up. That, that's understandable. He's not talking about that right here. What he's saying is you are saved, meaning you take Jesus just seriously enough to appreciate the fact that he saved you, but you've not grown anymore since. You take it just seriously enough to have a, an appreciation for it, but you're not taking your growth and your maturity seriously at all. You have too much of the world in you. Saying, hey, you, it's not, we're not talking about whether or not you're saved. We're talking about whether or not you're growing. And for whatever reason, the church in Corinth had stunted their growth. He desired to treat them like they were mature, like they were ready to eat meat and not just milk, but he couldn't do it. Now he gets specific here in this passage too, and he breaks it down. And he tells us what he means when he says, hey, you're mere infants in Christ. You are babies in Christ, and you haven't grown up at all. And he begins to tell them in detail what he means by that. And it's the same way in the physical world where we would identify somebody's age and their maturity level. Right? You would look at a couple different things. And two of the things that the Apostle Paul presents here in these first few verses are the diet and the behavior. So he, he says, hey, I can tell your maturity level and let me, based on the reports that I've received, based on the diet that you have and the behavior that you're displaying. So the diet, uh, he talks about what they're eating. I heard a doctor say it this way. He, he talks about the difference between milk and meat. And this retired doctor said it this way. One of the differences between milk and meat is that milk is food that's already digested by another, whether it's one's mother or a cow or a goat. He says, too often we want our food pre-digested by another, whereas the Lord wants us to digest his word ourselves. So too often, there's a humming. I don't know if anyone else is hearing it. It's something else. Okay, all right. I don't know what it is. We'll just keep going, all right? You just pay attention to me and not uh, Satan, whatever it is, all right? <laughs> So there's, there it is. He stopped. <laughs> Nailed it. So he says the difference between meat and milk is this. We, you have your food pre-digested. So you come in and you just want somebody else, some teacher. and They want Paul or Apollos, and I sit under this teacher. And what happens is Paul and Apollos have taken in God's word. They've digested it. They've, been, they've got the nutrients from God's word, and they just want them to spit it out. It's a, it's a pretty vulgar scene here, but he's saying that all you've done as little babies is you've received the milk and you've not grown up enough. Now, we see this in the physical world all the time, don't we? We see it all the time. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say that uh, if you're married, I want you to think back to your first date. Okay, if you're single, I want you to think about uh, a date that would look like this. Okay, let's say back on your first date, you were going to go to somewhere real fancy. I mean, you're going all out on the first date, which... You don't have to do, but let's just say it was. So you're going to go to a fancy restaurant. You're going to go downtown, let's say St. Elmo's, okay? You're going to go to St. Elmo's on this first date. So you're excited. And you know you're going to meet there at 6 o'clock. And so you get dressed and you get prepared and you get down there early and you meet your date and you go into St. Elmo's. And you sit down at this nice romantic table and things are going really good, okay? Then it's time for you to order the conversations flowing. I mean, this is, just seems like a really great date. It's time for you to order the food. And so you decide, I'm going for the home run. And you order the filet with the shrimp cocktail because you don't go to St. Elmo's and not get the shrimp cocktail, right? At least I've heard that. I've actually not tried it. Uh, so, no, again, no emails, okay? 
Then it's time for your date's turn to order. And you're thinking, I wonder what they're going to order this time. And instead of ordering the steak, they order the butternut squash beech nut baby food that's pureed enough that they could take a spoon and eat it. Okay? You're thinking, what in the world is going on? Then when the food comes, so does your date's mother. And they come and they sit next to them and they grab the spoon and they say all the choo-choo sounds. Here comes the choo-choo. And they begin to feed them the pureed food that they can actually digest. Now, we'd have a lot less married people in this church, wouldn't we? (laughs) Right? We hear something like that and we think, man, that's absurd. That's absurd. But here's the thing. The refusal to grow up, the refusal to grow up makes unity nearly impossible. Meaning you're sitting there ready to eat a steak and that shrimp cocktail and they're eating pureed baby food across the table from you. The the refusal for them to grow up means the unity between the two of you isn't happening. And what Paul is saying in the church, spiritual people who refuse to grow up make it impossible to be united to those who are. This is why we have divisions in the church because some refuse to grow up. We never grow out of certain things. We never grow up. Gordon Fee, who's a scholar, says it this way. He says, the argument for the Apostle Paul in chapter 2 tells us that for Paul, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is both milk and meat. This is not some distinction between you leave the gospel behind, you leave the cross behind. That's not what he's saying. As milk, it's the good news of salvation. I know I'm saved. I'm on a milk diet. I'm so grateful for what Jesus has done for me. He says, as solid food, it is the understanding that our entire life is dependent upon that same reality. But what he means is this. He means that you never grow out of the cross. You'll never grow away from the cross. Instead, you grow more deeply into it and its implications on your life and everything around you every single day. That's what spiritual maturity is. Here's the deal. We must have a strong spiritual diet. We have to. Or we're doomed to be 20, 30, 40, 50-year-old spiritual babies. And when a baby looks like a baby and acts like a baby... It's a great joy. But when someone who should be a spiritual adult is acting like a spiritual baby, it's a tragedy. The next analogy he gives us in these verses is uh, not just diet, but behavior. He says, among you, there is fighting and there's quarreling. And he equates that to a child's immaturity. He equates that to the way that children act. These two same characteristics, he'll quote in Galatians chapter 5 when he is describing what it means to live according to the flesh. And what he means by that is those who are Christians giving in and just living like the rest of the world. We're just going to go after worldly things. He says, when you live according to the flesh, it creates quarreling and fighting among the church, among God's people. Now, I, again, I have a 13-year-old all the way down to what will soon be, he'll soon be a 4-year-old. My four-year-old is having to learn some really tough lessons throughout his life. I mean, he's going through a separation anxiety right now. And he just wants his mama so bad every time. To the point where it's like, okay, we got to encourage him. We've got to bring him along. So we were going to go on a date the other night. And he just lost it. And so my wife, just trying to keep the peace, was like, hey, how about we just like hang out here? I said, no, we got to go. Because he's got to learn. And we had to go. And he, Now, if my 13-year-old were acting the same way, like, if he, like, no, 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 you can't go on a date. No, 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 no. And instead of saying, yeah, please go, I'll play Madden, the way he talks now, <laughs> right? If, if, if instead he was, we'd have a big problem on our hands. It's understandable with a three-year-old. We got to work through that. It's not understandable with a 13-year-old. What he's saying is this. You have been Christians long enough where the fighting and the quarreling should not characterize the way that you behave in the church or in your life at all. 
I mean, he's being really blunt here. He's saying at some level, you've got to grow up. In other words, he's saying you talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk. And here's the deal. We as Christians, we can, we can talk a big game. We can quote verses and memorize passages and listen to the right music and the right podcast. We can attend church for a lifetime and sit in seats and still be spiritual babies. Based on how we talk to other people, we talk about other people, based on what we expose ourselves to, the behavior that we display reveals where our heart really is. It just does. I remember not too long, or it was actually it was a few years ago, somebody who had an issue with me uh, and something that took place, and they were right. I was wrong. And so I, I needed to apologize. And so we were going to go sit and talk at a restaurant, just me and this other person. And I came in fully prepared to offer a very genuine apology. I, I felt sorry for having offended them. But at the same time, they had deeply offended me, and I needed to point that out as well. And so I started out the conversation at the restaurant, and we, I just launched in. I just said, hey, I'm so sorry for what I did. I really am. And I was wrong. I was way out of line. We walked through that and talked for about a half hour. And then I said, hey, I need you to know, though, when you said this and you did this, it deeply hurt me and offended me, expecting that they might have the same response and we would pursue reconciliation. But instead, their response verbatim, I don't care. I was born and raised here. And because I was born and raised in this certain location, that's just how I do things. And what I wanted to say out loud but didn't, and what I reflected on later was this. Shouldn't your spiritual birth matter more to the way you treat people than the physical location of your birth? Shouldn't your spiritual birth, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, control more of the way that you treat other people and the way that you behave in your life than where you grew up? Look, when, when a baby acts like a baby and looks like a baby, it's a joy because they have a lot to go. They have a lot of room to grow. But when someone who should be a spiritual adult is acting like a spiritual baby, it's a tragedy. Now, Paul's going to dive in and give us three images in the rest of this chapter. These three pictures are going to display what Christian maturity looks like and the call to Christian maturity. And it's not easy. He's going to give us three pictures, that of a field, of a building, and a temple. Okay, let's jump in. The first one's a field. It's found in verses 5 through 9, if you have your Bible. Chapter 3, verse 5 says this. What? After all, is Apollos, those of you who just want to, to learn from Apollos. And what is Paul? We're only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God is making it grow. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are his field, God's building. God's the one building. So he argues about himself. He says, hey, many of you in the church are saying, I sit under this person's teaching. And because I sit under Paul's teaching, I know more than you. And it creates quarreling. Well, I sit under Apollos' teaching. And under Apollos' teaching, I know more than you. And because I know more than you, and it creates fighting in the church. It creates a sense of pride. And Paul comes in and says, hey, when it comes to being a leader in the church in any capacity whatsoever, whether you're someone who serves in the nursery or you're someone on stage preaching, 
Everybody's on the same level. Nobody matters more than anybody else because you're not creating anything. You're simply a farmhand. That's what he equates it to. He says, me and Apollos were farmhands. And, and when you're on a farm, the farmhand comes, they have a task. They didn't create the task. They didn't think it up. It wasn't their vision. It wasn't their goal. They're told, go do this. And when you're done, you can move on to the next thing. And Paul says, that's all I've ever done in leadership. God has said, go do this. I go do it and I move on. That's why he says, when I arrived in Corinth, with Acts chapter 18, when I arrived in Corinth, I planted the seed, meaning I presented the gospel. I got the work going, and then I left, and I moved on to the next thing. And then Apollos showed up, and he had this way of preaching and teaching that was really strong and really good. He came in, and he took the seed that was planted and began to water it. But neither one of us caused it to grow. And anyone who's been in any kind of agricultural work, which, hey, central Indiana, that helps, right? Uh, anyone who's been in any kind of agricultural work can tell you that you can do all the work you want. And if God decides the harvest isn't going to be strong, guess what? The harvest is not going to be strong. And if God decides it's going to be plentiful, then guess what? It's going to be plentiful. And either way, you do the same work every time. The same work every time. Now, I'm not talking to farmers when I say this. I understand farming does require a high level of skill, and it's complicated more than I even ever thought it was growing up on the beach in Florida. But, but so hear me when I say this. Paul says here both planting and watering, they're unskilled and somewhat mechanical jobs. Anyone can do them. He says anybody can plant some seed in the ground and anybody can water it, but only God can create the growth. So leaders in the church should never use their position to gain any kind of glory. Leaders in the church are not the ones who deserve to be, uh, have any kind of a claim. He's saying enough with that. God is the only one that causes the growth. It says, look, God's field, here's what he's saying with this analogy. God's field, which is his church, it's God's activity that matters, not the activity of man. Not some winsome, charismatic, really clever, tweetable quoting preacher. That's not it. And not some great teacher and not some great children's volunteer. He said, that's not what creates the growth. Those are all important things. And we should serve in all of those capacities. But he says the most important thing is that the only growth that happens, the only transformation that happens is from God. God gives the tasks, God gives the growth, God rewards the laborers. His next illustration is for the architects or the uh, engineers in the church, and it's about the building. He says this in verse 10, by the grace that God has given me. I love that phrase because Paul is recognizing that no matter what I do in my life, it's God's grace that put me here, not anything I've earned. So by the grace that God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Notice he doesn't say I am the foundation. I simply laid it. I laid the foundation and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that was already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the foundation, and we don't create him. Like, we just present the gospel. That's the foundation. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, or wood, hay, and straw, their work will be shown for what it is on the day of judgment, because that day will bring light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If it, what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer a loss, even though he'll be saved. But he's only going to be saved as one who's escaping through the flames. Remember, he's not talking about salvation here. He's saying the foundation's the same for everyone who's building. You're in Christ. I'm a Christian. He's talking to the church. So we're in Christ. Here's the foundation. But what are you building with? Now, he's talking corporately to the church, which means this is to everybody. But you could easily draw from this personal application into your personal life. Corporately, he's saying, hey, what is the church about? 
Is it about self-help principles and making people feel good? Or is it built on this foundation? Are you building with materials that will last? And so he says gold, silver, and precious stones, which is probably marble given the context. He says you build with those. You build on that, which represent solid biblical teaching. That's what those represent in this context. It is true, solid, dedicated biblical teaching. So if you build the church on that, or he says wood, straw, uh, so you have wood and straw that you're going to build with. And what that represents is false teaching or worldly wisdom. It says, or you can build the church on false teaching, worldly wisdom, just make people feel good. It says, either way, don't worry about it because the fire is coming and the fire is going to prove what you built the church on. Now make, make this application to your life. He's saying, hey, you have the foundation of Jesus in your life. You claim to be a Christian. You claim to be a spiritual person. What are you actually building your life with? What is it that you're pouring into your children with as you parent them? What is it that's the, the basis for the conversations in your marriage? Are you praying together? Are you reading scripture together? If you're single and you're a college student or you're, you're in high school, what is it that's most important to you? Where is it that you spend the most amount of your time? What are you building your life with, not on? We understand I'm a Christian. I'm going to build it on Jesus. But what is it I'm building that up with? Because the fire will test and the fire, if you build a worldly life based on worldly wisdom, the fire will just wipe it out. But if you can build it on God's truth and your dedication to God's truth, that will last. That will last. The last illustration that he gives is found in verse 16 and following. After telling the church in Corinth, you've got too much of the world in what you're building your life on. He now talks about the temple, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So among the church... If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. Notice he doesn't seem to be playing around. God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So being that the Holy Spirit lives in you and God's presence is among you, don't be deceiving yourselves. If any of you actually thinks that you're wise by the standards of the world, of the age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Fools meaning you pursue the wisdom of God and the world sees it as foolish. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. Stop boasting about human leaders. I mean, could anything be more clear in this text that the church, particularly in North America, needs to hear? Stop boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. You don't need them to pre-digest your food anymore. They can lead you. But eventually you must eat meat. Stop eating pre-digested food. It's time to grow up because, because of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. He says, all things are yours. So whether Paul teaches you or Apollos or Cephas or, or, or you're, you see different things in the world or life or death or the present or the future, you have everything because you're in Christ and Christ is of God. It's a bold warning. He says, that, hey, in the Old Testament, the temple of God was a physical location. Now, because the Holy Spirit lives in us, it is what God is doing among us. And he says, if you play games with that, you're going to face God's wrath. You play games and try to destroy it. Why? Because you go live this worldly life and you bring all that worldly stuff back into the church, creating divisions and divisiveness where unity can't happen because no one's maturing. That means you're going to try to destroy the temple of God, which is the church, the people, by pulling people astray and creating fighting and divisions. Good luck because you're going to face the wrath of God. He says, instead, it's time to stop deceiving yourselves into thinking you can live this worldly life and grow spiritually and just commit yourself to growing up spiritually. Now, 
this is a hard passage. Like, you're like, hey, 1 Corinthians isn't like, oh, <laughs> when are we getting a breather is what somebody said after first service. I'm like, have you read through the rest of it? Uh, <laughs> so as we close, here's the thing. The Bible is very clear. We have opportunities to grow and to mature. The Bible calls it edification. When we take God's word and we're reading it, and because of the Holy Spirit, he begins to reveal things in our life that need to be addressed. That's called being edified by the text. That's what the Bible speaks of. Meaning I have areas that need to be edited in my life as a, as a Christian. I might be building with the wrong materials that aren't going to last. I might be investing in the wrong things. I, I need to be edified. I need the Spirit to edify me. That doesn't make it fun or pleasant because it's not. It's not. So I want to ask a series of questions, three questions that I'm going to ask you guys. They're not going to appear on the screen, but I will repeat them for you. And these are based on our passage that we studied that maybe this week the Holy Spirit will use in your life to edify. And as he does afterwards, I want to have a pastoral prayer over our entire church, myself included, as we seek to grow up, to stop playing games, to mature, to graduate from milk to meat. First question. Have you put too much stock in human leaders when it comes to your spiritual maturity? Say that again. Have you put too much stock in human leaders when it comes to your spiritual maturity? Do you pride yourself on whose books that you've read and whose teachings you've sat under? Do you feel that to, to, to grow up spiritually, to have a spiritual conversation, that you have to quote certain people and rely on everybody else's relationship? Because in this passage, here's what Paul's doing. Paul's telling us very, very clearly. Nobody else in the world can grow spiritually for you. Nobody else in the world can mature in your place. There is no substitute or stand-in for your spiritual growth. Question number two. Are you dieting on spiritual milk or spiritual meat? And here's the thing. I want you to be honest about it. I can't answer this for you, but I do know people have been Christians for 30, 40, 50 years. And to answer this question, honestly, it's really hard because you'll say, man, it's still milk. It's been 30 years I've been a Christian and it's still milk. And that's okay because here's the deal with the Bible. The Bible is not intended to shame you, but encourage you. It's not, entire, it's not intended to beat you down, but to call you up. That's the goal of this passage. Every time spiritual discipline, every time edifying and growing up is mentioned in the Bible, the goal is always restoration, reconciliation, or repentance. Every single time. Which means if you're someone who likes to tell other people that they're wrong and you're right because you just want to make sure they know they're wrong, you would do the kingdom of God a favor to keep your mouth closed and not speak. Because Paul's deepest desire here would not to see that the Corinthians knew that they were wrong and messed up. That... that goal that Paul has as he writes this letter is that they would be led to repentance and restoration with Jesus. And so when I ask, where is it that you're dieting? What is it? Are you feasting on God's word? Are you taking it in? It's not to shame you, but encourage you to step up. Last question. Have you protected the temple? And here's what I mean by that. Are you paying attention to what's coming in? What's going into your life? Let me ask you as an individual, because that affects us corporately. Because you need to grow so we can stay united. We have to protect the unity that God's blessed us with at New Hope by continuing to mature. And so the question I have for you is, have you been paying attention to what has been going into where the Holy Spirit lives, into your heart? The numbers are not in our favor. The amount of men who attend the church on a regular basis who are completely and totally addicted to pornography is staggering. 
They sit in church and pretend to be somebody and then they go home and these little devices that we have are portals to evil as much as they are convenient. We have people that are addicted to social media in a sense that they can't live without it. They're scrolling and scrolling and comparing and comparing and it's stunting their ability to grow. It's what we see. It's what we've got. We've got people that are streaming on every single device. You can watch all the shows you want. And then you're watching shows that you'd never watch if your discipleship group was sitting around you. You would not watch them with Jesus, no matter how much you say, well, Jesus hung out with the sin. That doesn't mean that you sit and watch something that's corrupting your mind and your heart day in and day out, stunting your ability to grow. That's not what Jesus was about. And we just take it all in and we justify it. We justify it. And what we're doing is we're bringing the world into the church and expecting it to be okay. It's tough. Look, an overexposure to the world and an underexposure to God's word will always lead to drifting, falling away, or walking away altogether from Jesus. So don't be surprised when you take an inventory of your heart and you feel spiritually depleted, but don't be shamed either. He just wants you to step up. So I want to consider this this morning. I want to pray over our entire church family. And here's the deal. I'm going to pray down here because we're all on the same level. This isn't about me telling you. This is about all of us, really. I need this as much as you do. Every single day in my life, I need it. We're on the same level. Nobody is exempt from this. Every single person. So let's pray that this week, God would continue to edify and lead us as we take inventory of our own maturity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. You never left us alone. You haven't. You've called us to be united, but you haven't left us to do it on our own. You empowered us by your presence living in us with the Holy Spirit. And oh man, we need it, God. Man, we need it. I think about, go back to the picture and the thoughts of my kids. And I think about, man, the world that they're up against. And and yet I'm not discouraged. I'm encouraged because the same Holy Spirit lives in them and is leading them. God, you are good. But we need you. And so this week, as we take some inventory of where we're at spiritually and what steps we need to take to grow up, Father, would you lead us and encourage us and love us? Allow us to be a place that is united, walking with one another in spiritual maturity. Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people.